0: How could you possibly fight, you know, a robot like that? <laughs> Otherwise, in general, Tombstone is not fun to fight. Huge is one of the hardest ones. Bronco is hard to face. Witch Doctor or uh, Hypershock or Endgame. Because any one good flip they get can be the end of the match for you.
1: Hi there, this is the SOLIDWORKS Board to Design podcast, a podcast of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and transform new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SOLIDWORKS. I'm your host, Cliff Medling, and this episode is titled, Kicking Bot and Taking Names. As today I'll be speaking with Paul Ventimiglia, who is the BattleBots team leader for Team ByteForce. Paul has been building robots since he was 14 and is now a three-time BattleBots champion. He also works building robots in the high-tech industry. Let's jump right into my interview with Paul. I'm really excited today about this interview with Paul Vitamilia. He's the BattleBots team leader for Team Bite Force. And I really want to talk about how you got into robotics and how you first started hearing about BattleBots, but I I feel like I had to first start off by congratulating you. Your second giant knot, that's got to be pretty exciting. So congratulations. How's that feel?
0: Thank you. It, it feels amazing. It's, it's really unbelievable in the sense that it's been about 18 years since I've started working on combat robots in general. And back then, the idea of winning was so far away.
1: I, I know. I, I can't even believe 18 years. You're not even that old. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's amazing that you've been doing it this long.
0: Yeah, back um, then I was, uh, I was 14 at my first BattleBots competition and built the robot when I was 13. And uh, it's been a, a long, long journey to get to where I am now where I'm very comfortable building robots in a very short time.
1: That's great. And, and I mean, what, what got you started, 13, building your own robot?
0: Yeah, so it's a common question, and I think the answer I, I always give, and it's, it's true, is I was really interested in wanting to build animatronics for movies and TV shows. So sort of the things that were most exciting to me I'd watch some movie like Jurassic Park or Star Wars or Terminator, and I wanted to build the actual puppets, the robots, and the animatronics that were in the movies, so when I would see like a behind-the-scenes special or something on TV, that was the coolest thing ever to me, and to see how there were real machines that were uh, looking interesting and being cool, and I don't know why. That was just very interesting to me, and I was always interested also in RC cars and toys, and one of my cousins started working at an RC car shop that was a little bit more professional and better and so as opposed to the rc cars you can get at toys r us or walmart this was going to the real rc cars were much more impressive in engineering and their power and that was the real um, starting point for robotics Because a lot of the same parts you'd use in small robots are the same thing as the high quality parts from the rc car industry
1: yeah you can see a lot of the battle bots are you know they're good drivers they always talk about being you have to be a good driver as well not just a good designer of a attack robot, right?
0: Yeah, that's driving comes up a lot. And um, my answer to that usually is that I think a well driven robot, like a good looking driver is largely due to the robot design. So when, when I see um, what appears to be a good driver, I, I think it's largely attributed to the robot. So okay. What I mean by that is if you have, let's say, a long robot with four or six wheels, and you tell it to go straight, it's probably going to go straight pretty well. If, if you have, for example, a two wheel drive robot, though, it's a lot harder to control even just going in a straight line. So a lot less traction and they're maybe dragging some part of the robot. And so when I see a robot that, you know, looks awfully driven, it's often just because it's two wheel drive and that's a squirrely type of robot to drive around. And so there are certainly good drivers and bad drivers in the sport, but I think the engineering of the robot has a lot more to do with it.
1: That's interesting. So I have to ask, you know, with this year's competition, you know, Tombstone won last year, but what are the biggest feared BattleBots for you? Which ones were the ones you were a little bit more nervous about that competition?
0: Well, there's, there's a lot, actually. Um, and you know, Tombstone is one of them, but Tombstone is easy to prepare for. It's not fun to fight, but my, my method of preparation for our team is just slap on all the armor we have for our sort of low wedge mode. And um, one of the primary things we design for is fighting a robot like Tombstone. So we have a pretty easy armor configuration for that. It's sometimes a lot harder to prepare for. For example, the, our first opponent in the tournament was huge, which has been making a lot of headlines this year and a lot of excitement because their design is so unique and different. And it looks like they're sort of a really fun team and robot, and uh, they are. And so they're out there to have a good time, but their robot is really hard to actually face from a strategy because they have giant 40-inch you know, diameter wheels, whereas our wheels are 5 inches, for example. And their spinning weapon is 20 inches in the air, and the tallest part of our robot is even only 16 or 17 inches off the ground. And so their spinning weapon is so high up, it's and their body is so high up, it's hard to actually hit them. Uh, besides these flexible plastic wheels,
1: right? And, right. This, and that, that was huge, right? Was it yeah. A- so,
0: so against huge, we actually had also the least amount of time to repair. So what happens oh, wow. is they they try to give you, you know, as a TV show, and they want to give you preparation time. So if they can tell you the night before hey, you're going to face this robot in the morning. That's great for everyone. Everyone has a little bit more time, a few extra hours to get your parts together to prepare. For the start of the tournament, we were one of the first matches. From the time they announced it till the time we fought was only a few hours. And most of that time, they want you sort of lined up and ready to go. So you really only have a couple hours to do any changes to the robot. So certainly not enough time to go out to a store and buy some material and and bolt it on. Um, so at that point, it's seeing what or if we can do in the pit for this unique opponent. And uh, my teammate JJ, I remember the start of the event before we knew about the bracket who we we're facing, he's like, how could you possibly fight you know, a robot like that? <laughs> and I, I didn't have a good answer. None of, none of us really had a good answer. And they certainly almost beat us too. That was, that was a really uh, surprising match. And we're lucky we sort of outlasted them. But otherwise, their their weapon really took ours out and uh, caused us some big problems.
1: Yeah, that did well this year. That that was definitely a, a unique design. So, yeah. yeah, that that's fun.
0: So, huge is one of the hardest ones. Otherwise, in general, Bronco is sort of hard to face because any one good flip they get can be the end of the match for you. Right. And uh, They're so low to the ground. And it's really hard to face, in general, vertical spinners with fork-like attachments. Um, and that's sort of the same thing that we have. And so, it's hard to face a robot like... Witch Doctor or Hypershock or Endgame, anything that's trying to be floor scraping and a vertical spinner.
1: That's fun. Yeah. So, so many good robots in this competition this year on Discovery Channel. That was great. You know, I'm a big fan of BattleBots before I even met you and uh, I watched the show with, with my sons and uh, I actually told my son, I, I said, hey, I'm talking to Paul from Bite Force today. I said, what, what would you like to know? And he had a great question. He, he said, what advice would you give for somebody getting started? Like, what's the first step? How do you even come up with your original design? You just sketch out some ideas. So what's that? How do you jump in and get started?
0: That's a good question. Uh, and it's two different ways of answering it. One that people ask is, how do you build a battle bot for the show? And my answer for that is very simple. It's focus on sort of your whole team package and the robot matters less. But then in terms of how to build a fighting robot or combat robot in general, it's, it's go out there and go on the internet and start searching for what you can find, uh, watch a lot of YouTube videos, build those websites. So when I, when I started, uh, when I was a kid, it was dial-up modem and people had these sort of handcrafted websites where some websites were pretty good, some were pretty bad, but the few good ones were filled with so much information and writing and, and pictures and sort of build diaries that it was a, a great resource for learning how to build something that I'd never done before. And the reason was a lot of those people had also never built the robot before. So they were documenting it from a sort of new person perspective where they're learning about what kind of motors to use. And they post pictures saying this motor worked really well. Here's why this motor burnt out in two seconds. I would never buy it. So they sort of would do this testing for you. And now there's so much information on people's websites and on Facebook pages and on YouTube videos of people showing how to wire up certain speed controllers and what kind of batteries to use. Uh, So there's tons of information out there. And there's a few companies that built little kits actually made by sort of robot competitors for robot competitors and for beginners that are pretty useful to use. Like one of them, for example, uh, Finger Tech Robotics, it's sort of the the driver of Lucky, as you see this season, Curtis. He has a, a kit that's a couple hundred dollars gets you an entire one pound Fighting robot ready to go with everything you need, and um, that's a great method for for starting out. And you could enter that in a competition that you find nearby, or you could modify it and make it better, or you could just learn it, use it as a tool to practice driving and learn about some of the different components.
1: You mentioned so often how much this is a community. Like when you're fighting other robots, it's your the robots are fighting that you guys don't have a a grudge against each other. <laughs> well, maybe there's some grudges out there, but but you said it's such a community, and everybody helps each other out. Um, yeah, it's
0: it's a great community in, in BattleBots and in fighting and robotics in general. Also, we mentor the high school kids in first robotics, and it's the same kind of feelings in the pits. And so, at BattleBots, for example, you have all these different teams that have worked so hard on their machines, and they all get to the event, and pretty much everyone is not ready. By meaning, they're not sitting back comfortably, waiting for a match to be start. You know, everyone is either really not ready, like they're still bolting the robot together for the first time and sawing and drilling parts or they you know they feel pretty good but they don't have a lot of practice time and so because of that tons of things break or don't work um, and we're constantly scrambling quickly to find a solution and your best resource is just asking another team who's right next to you who is probably an expert in the sense that they just solved that same problem you know hours ago or days ago or they're using the exact same component as you so it's pretty cool at the event to be able to just walk twenty feet away and find someone who says "Oh yeah no problem i 've done that before or here 's the part that you know you just broke i 've got a spare one right here
1: yeah it 's got to be fun because when you 're at the event it's it 's a lot of like minded people who love robots and love what they 're doing so it 's got to be a, a fun time even though you 're worried about the next competition so we, you talked a little bit about community I know and I know you 're doing a lot with your local robotics teams and mentoring i 'd love for you to just elaborate on that a little bit what you 're doing and and uh, how you're helping the community and the next generation of uh, robot uh, engineers? Or? Yeah, I
0: think engineers in general. I, I, hope, it, I hope it's um, – I've been a mentor of the FIRST Robotics. FIRST is an acronym for, for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and, and Technology. And uh, that was created by Dean Kamen in the early 90s. And I learned about it when I was a mentor of the program at WPI because a lot of the people – in the same lab I was building robots in, We're saying, hey, we have this team, we work with these high school students, you should you know, help out, join our team as a mentor. And I got sort of hooked in that because it's a great program in terms of um, competition robotics and using engineering in a competitive way, I think is a great way to learn a lot really quickly and teach a really broad spectrum of skills in terms of design and, and brainstorming initially, doing detailed work in SOLIDWORKS, for example, detailed designs, Uh, And then actually getting those parts made by yourself and by external shops all within days and not months, and then testing out your ideas. And then at at the event, you're learning about how to work with other teams and people, how to fix things quickly under sort of stressful situations. And if you're like myself and you weren't really into a lot of other sports, then it's a great outlet to have all the sport benefits also, like uh, just rooting for a team, working together, trusting your teammates. Uh, So that's all really big.
1: That's great, and and you know we talk a lot about STEM. I just think, especially with the drones these days and the robots and the battle bots, it's a great way to introduce um, you know younger people to engineering because we still need a lot of engineers. So with that, you know what 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 what's the future in your opinion for robotics? What's your vision for the future of robotics?
0: Yeah, it's it's really exciting stuff. Um, I mean, so I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and sort of the only robot kit and parts I could sort of have were the original Lego Mindstorms kit which which was great but we didn't even have a computer that could program it and all sorts of limitations and problems and now those you know kids that are 11 12 13 have things like the, the Vex robotics kit which is like real metal parts real motors and gears and, and real programming you know they buy those kits at home or have in the classroom and they're, between the ages of 8 to 15, they're becoming sort of robotics programming experts and learning about torque and motors. And so for the future, I have some pretty high hopes. I think a lot of young engineers, when they're, you know, age 20 to 25, get most of their work done in sort of all history, going back into you know, thousands of years. That's when a lot of those people do their most impressive work. And so by having more tools in the hands of kids when they're younger, I think, is going to start producing even more stuff really soon, because those when those kids are turning 20 and 25 and they're working really hard. They're just that much ahead of the curve. And I work as my day job in sort of a robotic um, startup where we're, it's called Robbie technologies and we're delivering packages or groceries with sidewalk delivery robots. And the the goal is, you know, full autonomy. And so right now it's, it's sort of this game of finding all of the sensors off the shelf and then seeing which ones you have to make cut for custom sensors that aren't available yet and trying to make all those components work together. And that's still a big part of robotics today is just making a system of parts work together and a lot of finding those parts. And so each year there becomes more companies making more sensors and better computers and parts and more easily available where you can actually just click it and buy it at a good price and it arrives soon and it works out of the box. And we're, we're still not to that point yet. And we're, we're getting there soon, but still it's a lot of, um, being able to find the right components. And then right when you go to plug it in, it, it magically doesn't work. And you're trying to figure out why. And if you have to write something custom to modify it or make your own sensor or your own uh, you know, program to talk to that sensor. And so we're still not there. And I think that means there's a lot of um, opportunity for the future for when those things get better.
1: It's, it's, it's exciting stuff. I agree. Paul, I have to ask you this one question because I think it's interesting. You won in 2015, won the giant nut. And then as soon as you won, you immediately decided on designing a new design. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> was, that, was that just because you just love robots and you love building them and you want to try something new? or uh...
0: So it's a little interesting. Um, and actually, with an official BattleBots competition, they held this one in 2009, which never made it to TV airing. It was supposed to be on something like CBS or CBS Sports. Or, or you, and um, I had a 220-pound robot, which then was sort of their heavyweight class with a different robot called Brutality. And that robot actually won that event, but basically nobody knew and we couldn't really talk about it because it was still under all of the same contractual obligations about not being able to reveal the outcome in the event. And after many months of me begging and pleading to BattleBoss to say, if you're not gonna air it, can you at least release you know, the footage of, of our match in the finals so that we can at least tell some people that we built a robot and it exists and it did well. And it Absolutely. took a while to get that out. But um, I think when they realized it, it wouldn't sell as a package. They were willing to do that. And so now it, it sort of feels like having won three times, which is even crazier. But so what some people pointed out to me is that I was one of the first people to do it with three different robots. And so it was not even just a different version of the robot, but really a different robot. So the first version of Brutality was an overhead bar spinner, similar to the old BattleBot Hazard. And the second one, the first version of Byte Force. It had the clamping jaws and the tank treads. And on this third version, now the sort of new, the main uh, battle bot that I've been running is Bite Force with the vertical spinning weapon. And that is the robot that I wanted to compete with in 2015. But that application process was very quick and not really in a lot of the competitors' control. And so for that event, they had very little time to put together an event and they had to make sure it was with robots and teams that would be sure to deliver that they worked with before and could sort of keep everything secret and build quickly and build something that looks good. They, they couldn't have a lot of no-shows or new competitors. So they sort of handpicked this list of 24 competitors. And for our team, we actually did not get in. So we are one of the alternate selections and we were told to make a design that was really cool looking and could be imagine like a kid's toy and just be, have something interesting about it, some type of theme or style or uh, personality. Because I first proposed a vertical spinning weapon. And they basically said, we have ones like that. We don't want that. And I was sort of led into, I think, falling for that and making a different design, which they still only selected as an alternate. And then by the time, about three weeks before the event came around, I modified the robot to look like what you saw on TV, which was the tank treads and the, the jaws. That was my sort of simplified version of that robot. And that was one where it was what I could build quickly without too much financial risk to myself. And so that's how that robot sort of came to be. And only nine days before the event, we find out we were bumped up to one of the official slots. So at that point, we already had to take the plunge of buying all the expensive parts. And I was between jobs, so it was perfect timing. And one of my teammates was also between jobs that time. And that's the only reason we got the robot done. We worked on it for about two weeks straight full time. So for once we won, we knew that it would be a little different for the next year because BattleBots basically said we want you know, the returning championship team, so it will be hard to not accept you with a new design. And so when we submitted the new design, it was sort of no problem, and that's the vertical spinning weapon. And I'd seen a lot of other robots with vertical spinners um, do really well, but I'd never seen it on sort of the heavyweight level until there was a robot called Electric Boogaloo, and that robot sort of worked so well, I wanted to scale it similarly I designed a lot of the weapon system based off of that robot and sort of the, the rest was history, I guess.
1: I never heard that story. That's interesting. Uh, so I, I thought bite force was the original design and went from there. That's, that's interesting. More insight into the battle. Yeah, the, the behind the, the Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, there's definitely a lot of vertical spinners these days. I think they're doing, realizing they're doing pretty well.
0: Yeah. So now there's a lot of vertical spinners and there will probably be some pushback. It's a sort of easy to design to, to do well because there's, You don't need as much horsepower and stored energy in the weapon to cause a lot of damage because you're using the floor to react against. So when you hit someone, it pushes yourself into the floor, but you're already on the floor, and it puts all that energy in the opponent pretty perfectly, Uh, as opposed to if you're a horizontal spinning weapon like a tombstone or a gigabyte, then you're pushing yourself away equally. So you have to sort of share the energy absorption. And vertical spinners are really common in the small weight classes. I used to have one... 15 years ago in a 12-pound weight class, but um, we haven't seen them as much in the big big robots for some reason, and now there's a whole ton.
1: Right. Well, they've got to be fun because they flip things up in the air, right? That's, that's what Yeah, makes it's, exciting. it's a really good design which you
0: can get a, a cross between offensive and defensive. So the front of, of Bite force, we have a bunch of different um, sort of plows and wedges and attachments, and the idea is that if you put a big sort of plow in the back of your robot, and you uh, use the idea of trying to stop them and then turn around and use your weapon on them, that's not going to look good in all of the judging uh, rubrics you've had recently. So in many cases, that could count against you because you're not using your weapon when you're attacking or you're not using your weapon to try to control. And so if you can put the wedge and the weapon together, then it's a lot better um, if it comes down to a judge's decision.
1: That's great. Paul, It's really all I had. I feel like I could ask a couple more questions. I, I was going to ask about the one match that you had where you, you lost power for a little bit there. <laughs> and then yeah. came back and won it. I was, I was so nervous watching on television. I thought you were done. I thought you were out of the competition. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was pretty darn scary. I've never had something exactly like that happen. And I've really never seen it work to come out of it so well. So what happened was, you know, we're up there. There's is a the big hit. I knew immediately the robot was unresponsive. And there's really only one possible source in that case. There's one power switch that controls everything. And then there's one radio receiver. Every type of other failure you'd have would be independent. And so for the whole robot to go down, it had to either be that main power switch or the receiver. It's much more likely to be the receiver just because of how they're built and the construction of them. And so one thing I tried was sort of restarting the transmitter. And I never thought to try that again. And what that would do is only would fix like a certain situation, which would be in case the transmitter had been oversaturated with too much radio signal from all of the production equipment in that room. There's lots of um, 2.4 gigahertz like Wi-Fi and microphones and lights and all sorts of wireless things in the arena. So if the channel is being saturated, maybe turning it back on again, it caught a clear channel would be the thing to do it. And it appeared to work. The reality is we'll never know exactly what it was that Uh um, made it work. So it's also vaguely possible that the power switch sort of metal contact had a a divot on it and the shock it came and resettled on. Or the receiver, you know, similarly had some type of weird boot up. And when they restarted the transmitter, it maybe helped connect again. There's really no way to know. But
1: uh, it takes a little luck sometimes. to. Yeah.
0: And and so we, we had a big discussion after that match about what to do about that receiver. And we actually left it in for the, the rest of the tournament. And some people might say that's stupid, but the discussion we had on our team was this was weird, this is a fluke. But in reality, testing a new one is sort of equally likely to have an issue, and it's worked really well for the last dozen or 15 matches I've used that receiver in. Right. Um, they're all, it isn't the same receiver as season one and season two so far. And we do shock mount everything really well. We have sort of rubber isolators and uh, additional sort of foam and all strain relief connections, and glue and epoxy reinforced electronics. And we ended up sticking with it. And it turned out to be an okay and right decision because we were worried that we would put a new one in. It looks okay, but there's no way to really test that in the box. And so if you get like a bad cold solder joint or something, which appears to work fine on the bench, but in the arena, it, it shows a problem, then there's no way to have any testing time on that. And so similarly, we made a big change during the event which happened after the endgame match and before bombshell sort of our last match of the pre-qualifying matches and we changed the whole weapon motor system to use all four mag motors as opposed to the one big motor we had before and we wanted to get real box time on testing that new part out and so that was a big deal to put that in a match uh, before the tournament and use it in a way that we stressed it really hard so I think we show an extra level of aggression against bombshell um, because we're trying to really test out that weapon system and sort of break it and we wanted to break it before the tournament
1: <laughs> oh interesting that's one way to do it uh, yeah thanks for your clarification on that i was watching and i was uh i was getting a little nervous for you paul so, so I've yeah well.
0: against huge i was more nervous and more assured that we had lost because against endgame when we died for a second it was all over really fast i think the tv even made it look a little bit longer and how they edited it but against huge They took out our weapon on one of those first hits, and um, even though we had a sort of chain guard and cover over it, it was a three-quarter inch thick UHMW plastic got bent into the chain and sort of destroyed our our weapon sprocket, and so we had no chance but to knock them out because once a robot knocks out your sort of main weapon, it's very hard to win the rest of the match or the judge's decision, and we couldn't really get them out of the arena because they're just so big and hard to move around. And so eventually, the hits were so big that of us coming together and the power of their weapon and us sort of absorbing a lot of that weapon power, and the way they kept smashing them, eventually they fell apart in the arena. And so that was, went from one of the lowest points where I couldn't believe we had made it so far. We got into the tournament, we had a good bracket, good ranking. We would lose on the first match to a pretty new robot, it would be pretty embarrassing. And so instead, you know when they fell apart and it showed that our robot was more durable and survived the, the battle. Uh, it felt really good to get that result.
1: That's awesome. I haven't, I haven't actually seen that one yet, so I'm looking forward to <laughs> it to now. I know so spoiler alerts if you haven't watched the whole season. I, I, I've been taping them on Discovery Channel. So. <laughs> Well Paul this is great. thanks for your time today. I could talk for another hour about battlebots, but maybe that's just me but I think there's a lot of uh, SOLIDWORKS users who are definitely tied into battlebots. Uh, it's an interest for them as well. So
0: yeah thank you because it's always fun to talk to you about it and, and I, I know I was new from the start to how, how into it you were so it's always really cool when someone is both into it and a supporter of our team. So it's really thank you, Cliff.
1: Thanks for listening today. And remember that if you are interested in robotics, smart products, and mechatronics like Paul is, learn more about building your electromechanical products at SolidWorks.com mechatronics. That's SolidWorks.com mechatronics. And hey, we'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SolidWorks.com podcast or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating.